I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer vital health questions that will help you thrive, like, what does my mental health have to do with my gut? How can I prevent melanoma? How much sleep do I really need? And how can I manage my health without a family doctor? I chat with the top experts to bring you the latest evidence in plain language, all in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Nala Ayad. Welcome to the first of the 2022 CBC Massey Lectures, Laughing with the Trickster on Sex, Death and Accordions by the acclaimed Cree writer Thompson Highway. Indigenous mythologies, says Thompson Highway, provide unique, timeless solutions to our modern problems. Within the endless circle of life, the earth is a garden of joy unlimited. And the reason for existence is to have a blast, to laugh ourselves silly. At the centre of that in Indigenous mythology is the figure of the trickster, zany, ridiculous and wise. A bit of a trickster himself, in his Massey Lectures, Thompson Highway leads us on an exhilarating exploration of five themes at the centre of the human condition. Language, creation, sex and gender, humour and death. Thompson Highway is a Cree author, playwright, and musician. He wrote the plays The Res Sisters and Dry Lips Ought to Move to Kappa's Casing, the best-selling novel Kiss of the Fur Queen, as well as children's books and a memoir, Permanent Astonishment. This year was the first since the pandemic that we were able to record the Massey Lectures on tour to Fredericton, St. John's, Saskatoon, Vancouver, and Toronto. We had technical difficulties with the recording of the first lecture in the series in Fredericton, so we decided to recreate that lecture as a conversation. I began by asking Thompson Highway to read an excerpt from that first lecture. Our elders like to say that there was a time eons ago when humans and animals spoke one language, so Dad would summon moose with a honk, loons with their signature hunting ululations and mating calls of grants combined with gurgles, beavers with a hiss, and owls with a hoot. It was only a matter of time before these sounds morphed into verbs and nouns. Moosa for moose, magwa for loon, a misk for beaver, and uhu for owl. A shepherd in ancient Greece would have done the same on the rock-pocked slopes of his sun-splashed Arcadia, cooing at his sheep, clicking his tongue to guide their movements. Some linguists say this is how human language was born. Having heard such verbal exchanges myself, I believe it. As with the story of creation, of the universe, the planet, humankind, no one really knows. And because no one knows, theories proliferate. One theory is that language comes from gestures transmitted from one animal to another and later from one human to another. Another is that it comes from sounds, cries, for instance, wails, barks, evolution, progress, grammatical development for the purposes of survival, they all factor in. 
Poets, artists, and shamans would have taken over to give persuasion to these forces of nature and these landscapes. And from such potent ingredients would have risen the divine beings that now populate the planet from one end to the other, or at least did at one point in the past. Yes, indeed, languages do come from acts of magic, of all-out wizardry, of shamanism. They come from that universe of miracle unending called world mythology. So if the world is filled with languages, then it so follows that the world is filled with mythologies. Why? Because it is languages that not only gave birth to those mythologies, but also gave them the form and the character they have today. Over the years, I have come to believe that through the course of much human movement across this planet, three mythologies in particular have come to a meeting point, a kind of forum here on our North American continent. They have mixed and mingled and emerged as a hybrid, and it is this hybrid of three mythologies, as I see it, that has had the most to do with giving form and substance to North American thought, life, and culture as we know it today. Great. So thank you again for doing this, and thanks for inviting us into your room to do this. The Massey Lectures are called Laughing with the Trickster on Sex, Death, and Accordions. Mm -hmm. The very first lecture is called On Language, mm -hmm. and you start by talking about your family and how mm -hmm. they came from northern Manitoba. Mm -hmm. Why is that the place to start? Like, what, how are family and language connected? Well, it's the first language that I spoke when I came into this world. I grew up with the language. My parents um, was a lingua franca at the house, Cree. At the, in the home. Cree was our language. So that was the language, the only, the only really the only language we spoke at home. It's the one that I know best, and it's the one that I'm most familiar with, the one I love most, and the one that my not just my family, my personal family, but my extended family speak right across northern Manitoba and northern Saskatchewan because the family straddles the border. So what does family sound like to you? Oh, we laugh a lot. Family to me is laughter because the language is innately funny. It's hysterically funny. And uh, so we just laugh a lot. And uh, so the sound of family to me is laughter. You make the point that the Cree language is shaped by the natural world. Hmm? The words are frequently shaped by the objects that they are describing. Hmm? Can you give some examples of that? Which means, cuckoos means pig or bacon. And that, what I just said, means that big nostril fat has to do what a pig. <laughs> that's what a hippopotamus is to us. <laughs> and look, see how you're laughing already. Because the syllables are just innately funny. Cuckoos, that's a pig, for instance, you know. Pig, does, pig doesn't make you laugh. Yeah. The word pig, but yeah. cuckoos does. Does. Yeah. What else? What and other way, examples? Just the way your, 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 your mouth, your lips point. Yes. And make a little O. You know, it's just <laughs> Does it make you think of a pig? Yes, really. And, and you, the way that what happens to your face when you pronounce that that vowel. Mm -hmm. What other examples are there? Like when you think of words that are shaped by na by the natural world. The natural world. Yeah. Oh well, ogituak. That means the noise. They who make noise, and that's thunder. To us, thunder is our creatures. Like we don't say the thunderbirds like other other peoples do, other nations do, but we do call them ogituak. They have they're creatures that make noise. That's another word, you know. Dutin. Uh, that means wind. You know. Um, Sounds like wind. They have wind. Imatut, uh, uh, which means he cries. 
he babbled, he laughs. Mosuyas, which is funny, or innately funny, but it's not funny at all in English. Moose meat. Mosuyas. Moose. That's a moose, okay? A misk. That's a beaver. And, uh, oh yeah, a good one is horse. We don't have horses where I come from, but we call, we do have an name for them because of the influence from Southern Cree. There's a lot of Cree people in Saskatchewan. They, they cover the entire province pretty well. But we call them, a Tim is a dog, and Mr. Tim is a big dog. Mm. It means a big dog, but it, it also means horse. That's our name for a horse is a big dog. And uh, and so what's really, what's really cute and all that is a, a pony, is a Mr. Timosis. Which means a big little dog, <laughs> so, and wow. it's just already funny. It's yeah. just cute and funny, and we titter a lot. We chit, we chortle a lot, we chuckle, and it's our favorite. It's certainly my favorite activity. I love to laugh. How do you think language shapes us and makes us who we are? Our bodies move according to the way, the way we speak. You know, the way we walk, the way we gesticulate with our arms and our, and our faces. In Cree, for instance, where a very common uh, facial expression is the pointing the lips to indicate a direction. Like mm-hmm. niti means uh, over there. So we've got niti, that kind of stuff, and we'll point our lips in that direction. Mm-hmm. Or like the elders, for instance, when you ask them where they were born. They don't really know because we were born out in this vast land and we were nomads. We were always wandering. We were nomads. And they would say, Oh, Niti. They're going, Oh, Tiwazo. Which means over there, far, far away. And uh, and the further away it is, the longer the Wazo. Yeah, mm. that kind of stuff. So the, uh, just to, the way our body move make us who we are. French, for instance, they point their lips a lot. They use their cheek muscles a lot. And really, honest to God, after living in France for six months, because I did for four years, when you come back after, after not having speaking, spoken English for six months, you really do feel the difference when you come back here and speak English, because English uses different, different uh, facial muscles. I see. Yeah, really mm-hmm. interesting how that works. So. Yeah. so how does Cree? How did the Cree language itself make you who you are? It makes me laugh a lot. I'm a laughing person. My, I come from a laughing marriage. My, my parents were always laughing. There was laughter always filled. The, the house rang with laughter. Well, it was the house. It was a tent. I grew up in tents, you know. And uh, laughter was a central part of the culture, an, an indelible part of the culture. Uh, it was just fun to be alive. It's a joyful language. It's a language of great joy. So we're very joyful people. Did it also shape who you were when you were not joyful? Yes, it did. I mean, I do get depressed very rarely, I must say, because I have such a good life. But I do, there are moments when I do fall a bit. But even then, it's the laughter that always brings me back up again. Yeah, yeah it's hard. You can't live in Cree without laughing. Yeah. This first Massey lecture, all about language, took place in Fredericton. While the tour was there, Thompson met with members of the Maui Art Webanaki Artists Collective set up in 2013 to support and promote local Indigenous artists. The discussion was about what it means to be an Indigenous artist. And in today's program, we'll hear a few excerpts from that discussion. I'm Tara Francis. Mm. I'm from El Sabocto First Nation. I'm a Mi'kmaq as well. And I'm a visual artist. And I am a, what people refer to as a master quill artist. Mm. So I actually grew up off-reserve. Mm-hmm. My mother is of Irish descent. We can kind of trace our, I'm like fourth generation Irish on my mother's side. 
and pretty hardcore Mi'kmaq on my father's side. And uh, they actually separated when I was eight years old. So, you know, other than going to my grandparents on like holidays and going to their cottage in the summer, we didn't really, you know, weren't really submerged into the indigenous culture. And it wasn't necessarily, you know, called the indigenous culture in the early 70s and 80s. We were just all people, you know. I didn't really single myself out as being anybody different than anybody else. But as I got older and time went by, you know, we started to uh, bring back those traditions and things. And uh, by attending the New Brunswick College of Craft and Design, uh, I started back in 1999. That's really when I started embracing like who I was in this, as an Indigenous person. So I went to the college. I thought I was going to go learn crafts. And I actually started by learning from uh, Elder Gwen Bear, who's now passed on, uh, that uh, you know it starts with spirituality. Our first lesson was art's not separate from life. You know, it's it's all a part of it. We didn't have our artists in this. It's just what we did. That communication with each other and with nature and everything was reactive to uh, the artwork we were putting on our on our clothing, carving into our rocks. It was just, you know, that marking of time. So I think that a lot of those lessons in my early artistic training was more important than the skills that I was learning. You know, it was just another medium to uh, to express those more spiritual concepts. You write that languages come from acts of magic. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by that? Well, when you think about where these uh, these words come from, in English, as in French, or as in Korean, in any other language, you know, they are sparked by the human imagination. When the human imagination needs to express an idea, generally speaking, I think what happens is that the, 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 the word comes out of the mouth, and it's by itself. There are moments when it does come, the, the new words come out of the mouth. We certainly have a lot of experience with that, translating English into Cree and French into Cree. And uh, ultimately, what comes out of the mouth is a little spark of magic. That's the only way I can express it, you know? For instance, in French, uh, we, the, the, word, the, the letter L didn't exist in the Cree culture until the French came along. And so we have words, uh, since then we have words now in Cree that have the, that have the L in it, la messe, for instance, mm-hmm. which is the mass, because they were Catholics. Then la chuk, which is the hat. The, wool, the hat made of wool, lapotin, which is a dessert that looks like uh, fruitcake. So uh, the L became, came into, sort of slid into the language grace of the French missionaries, and that became part of, part of us. Because the L, when you think of it, you know, the, way the, the way the tongue moves, L, mm-hmm. your, your tongue uh, sort of pushes against the teeth and the palate, and that produces the word, the sound la. Mm-hmm. And so that becomes a part of your personality, you know. It's, a, it's just a lovely thing to express. And that, that sound, the L, just gave us a lot of pleasure. It, it gives a lot of, uh, it was like eating an ice cream cone, you know, those that kind of thing. Yeah. Do you remember ever thinking at that time what quality that adds to the Cree language? Were you conscious of the fact that something had been added to the Cree language? Uh, well, it predated us. It came along. Sure. The missionaries arrived in eighteen in our area yeah. around eighteen sixty, mm-hmm. which is uh, before even before my parents' time. My my, my parents were born in nineteen oh eight and nineteen eleven, respectively. Mm-hmm. So it, even before that, was, they arrived. The missionaries arrived at the time of their grandparents. I sure. would say, yeah, something like that. And so it was they who absorbed the impact of the, the arrival of the letter L. 
Were so, you conscious of the fact that it was an, an, an addition? No, no, only, only okay. it was natural part of the okay. language by that time. Mm-hmm. And we, I only became uh, aware of it later on in life when I went to school. Got it. Yeah. To pick up on something you said a minute uh, earlier, I'm wondering if you think that speaking, does speaking a different language mm-hmm. change who you are? Like, for example, when you speak French, mm-hmm. are you a different person than when you speak Cree? Yes, I am. English is the ultimate uh, language of the intellect. It's an intellectual language, par excellence. It's extraordinary. It's fantastic. It's a language of science, a language of mathematics, a language of uh, commerce. It comes from the head, lives in the head. My French, by, by contrast, is a, an emotional language. It comes mm. from that part of the human body between the, left, between the neck and the waist. And so the, the appreciation of sensual things is very part, part, part of the culture. It's a sensuous language. It's a, so therefore, French is a sensual uh, culture. Cree, par contre, is uh, not an intellectual language, it's not an emotional language, it's a visceral language. And so it comes from that part of the body that's below the waist, which is, which is very hard to talk about. As soon as you get down to that part of the body, that part of the human body, your English starts getting scared. You know, English doesn't, is not, does not allow you to go down there. It lets there. you down. It does not, yeah, it doesn't yeah. Let, allow you to go down there. It's like going down there is going back, just putting a foot back in the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Joy, the Garden of Pleasure, which is the human body, when you know, because mythology operates on several levels, one of which is as its universal metaphor. So it's a garden, yes, like a park, a landscape, but at the very same time, it's the human body, which is the human pleasure. And, and in certain languages, you're allowed to go into the garden, other languages, you're not allowed. So that's a picture from up here, from a helicopter view. Hmm. How does y- your speaking, Cree versus French, change you as a person? Oh, uh, it's easier to talk about love. <laughs> it's, uh, it's essentially like, it's just, it just, just makes you feel more sensual and, uh, and you're touching things. The, the, the action of touching, your skin touching other skin, your, skin, mm. your hands touching each other, rubbing against each other. It's a much more pleasurable experience expressed in French than it is in English. Yeah. Whereas in English, it's the, it's the head that, that, that works like magic. It's the intellect that's, that jumps about, that is very athletic. The English language, very athletic in that sense, physically athletic. Uh, French is em- emotionally pleasurable. And Cree, back home, it's, uh, it's hysterical. It's an hysterical <laughs> language. You just, you, even talking about it, you smile. Yeah. 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 You write about languages as if they're living cr- creatures almost. Mm-hmm. Yes. People shape them, but they also shape people. In what sense would you describe languages as being alive? You know, when you think of it, how many thousands of languages there are on the, on the face of the earth, it's extraordinary. It's sort of addressing the issue that we were talking about earlier, the fact that they, they're always changing. They're being shaped by people, and people oh, shape yeah, them. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. So they're always changing and morphing. Always changing, yeah. Uh, and, pe- and languages are forever absorbing uh, terms and words uh, from other languages. And it's the same thing with Cree. We use uh, the most common term that's entered the Cree language just, just this year is uh, text, the word to text. Oh, really? We okay. say the word text is now a Cree verb. So we'd say, Text me, you text me, I text you, they will text you. That kind of stuff. What does that tell us, that, that, that kind of this cross-pollination that happens constantly? What does that tell us about us? That means the languages are living. If they didn't, they would be dead. For instance, Latin is a dead language in that sense. Well, we still use Latin terms, but we don't, we're not adding new ones mm-hmm. to it at all. In fact, the entire, uh, all the, most European languages are based on Latin, Latin structure and Greek. Yes. But uh, they're not languages that are used in everyday conversation. So in that, in that sense, they're, they're dead. But 
English is still very much a living language, as is French, mm -hmm. as, as is Cree more and more, with people like me working at it yeah. and very purposefully making it live, live on. Okay. Yeah. So turning to one of the main themes of your, of your lectures, you connect language to mythology, mm -hmm. and you write, quote, so if the world is filled with languages, then the world is filled with mythologies. Mm -hmm. How do you see the connection between language and the making of mythologies? Well, the, God, the creatures that, that come out of, that live in, in mythologies, and God knows they're magical creatures, it seems to me that they come out of the way, the way language functions on the human tongue and on the human brain and on the human body. Uh, that's the best way I can explain it. Mm -hmm. And that out of those body movements and that, and that, that musicality on the tongue and, on, and in the brain is where those creatures, those, mytholo those mythological creatures are born. There are funny creatures. There's who invented the the, uh, the concept of a, a man with wings? You know, it's the human body that invents those 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 creatures. Mm -hmm. They are born to themselves frequently, it seems to me. And uh, but ultimately, it is the language. It was it's language that, that you need a language in order to express them. You know, dragons, mm -hmm. centaurs, gorgons, all those creatures. Yeah, they come from the human human language. Oh, well, it's book. Uh, good morning. My name is Brandon Mitchell. I am Big Moth from uh, Listigouche, Quebec. I am a uh, writer, illustrator, and uh, I don't want to say that I struggle with the label artist or indigenous artist. I've always loved creating. I struggle with labels, and I struggle with the label of indigenous artist because I don't fit the mold, or I never fit the uh, the the as I got older in understanding what pan-indigenous iconography was, I never fit that concept um, because I, I grew up with comic books. I grew up with movies. The only thing that I noticed when I was growing up, though, is that I didn't see any of us in, in, these, in these products. And if I did see myself or if I did see a Native character, I latched on no matter what. You know, like there was only one character in G.I. Joe. There was, what, one character in Mortal Kombat? I was like, okay, if I ever have an opportunity to do something cool, this is what I want to do. And I want to tell stories, but I don't want to tell, I want to tell our stories and I want to tell them in a way that, that interests me. And I decided to launch my own comic book. I was teaching at the time and I had this little fun exercise and I, and I gave the kids a legend. They're seeing all these cool stuff, but they don't see themselves in anything. I purposely only gave them two acts of the story and I said, what would you, how would you guys finish the story? And her ideas start flowing and then there was one kid in class and he stops, he's drawing and he just stops and I was like, hey, what's up? And he just looks at me, like dead in the eyes and he goes, how would you do it? So I start sketching and drawing, blah, blah, blah. And all the kids in that class were just like, this is so cool. And when they saw just like chicken scratches, just rough ideas of what I was trying to do, I was like, okay, I think I've got something here. And that's when I uh, said, you know what, I'm gonna try and do the impossible, which was I'm going to do a comic book and I'm going to do it myself. I'm going to start my own comic book company and then that's what I did. And then from there, I had an opportunity to keep on creating. You're listening to the 2022 CBC Massey Lectures on Ideas on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas.
You can also hear us on the CBC Listen app and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. In the first of his Massey lectures, Laughing with the Trickster, Thompson Highway argues that language shapes the way we see the world. He writes, Like birdsong, languages make our planet a beautiful place, a fascinating place, indeed a miraculous place to live on. Without language, he believes, we're lost creatures in a meaningless existence, and that's why we tell ourselves stories. Language helps us create mythologies, useful ways of understanding who we are and why we're here. So let's talk about the three main mythologies that you mm-hmm. find interesting. Of course, the Greek, the Christian, and then, of course, the indigenous. Mm-hmm. You get into these mythologies in some detail later in the lectures, but I'd like to kind of do just a small thumbnail sketch, if we can. Christian mythology came out, was born out of Greek mythology. And uh, if Christian mythology comes out of Greek mythology, the Greek mythology comes, was born, in a sense, before Greek mythology ever came into being. Uh, because what what happened there was that at that point in their development, in the, in the development of the civilizations, mankind had already started giving physical human form to these creatures, like the, the men with wings, so on and so forth. Whereas Greek mythology comes from bef- a time before that when humankind had not yet moved beyond the, uh, the idea of uh, anthropomorph- anthropomorphizing these spiritual energies, these spiritual shafts of magic, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So uh, our, our mythology is uh, up to a certain point in time, up to modern times, it was pretty well invisible. There were abstract uh, ideas. The trickster was an abstract idea. It did not really exist. There was no physical shape to it. It was only the modern artists of the 20th century that have, that started physicalizing them. And uh, so it was the exploration of the, the respective histories of the three mythologies, where they come from and how they developed to be what they are today. That's what interested me. And what really interested me about it was that I, what, what puzzled me, because puzzled us as a people with the arrival of Christian mythology on our shores in 1492, yes. was that because we had never seen it before, mm-hmm. was the fact that the, the, there was only one God uh, and that, that that God was male. And I wanted to reach out to a point in, in human in European history when there had been such that concept of divinity in divinity female form had still existed before it had disappeared, before it had been uh, basically uh, annihilated by Christian mythology. All those goddesses were to take, were just basically erased by Christian by monotheism, and so the, all the goddesses disappeared, and so did the idea of divinity in female form. I wanted to explore that idea. I wanted to, to, to people to know that. There, you know, when, when Christopher Columbus arrived here, when Chris, the Christian God arrived here in 1492, the first question we had for him theoretically was that, why did you come alone? Where's your wife? Where's your mistress? Where's your girlfriend? You know, mm. we just want to know why is this guy so lonely and so uh, all that stuff. You don't want to go any further than that, uh, but uh, but but that does actually yeah, get into the next question that we yeah, had, which is, uh, you know, 
in the case of Christian mythology, the one that seems to have shaped the Western world, wh- what is it that went wrong, in your opinion, from in my your opinion? perspective? Yeah. I think it was precisely that, that it erased divinity in female form. That it, that it was a mistake. I, I, I really a very big mistake. And that might well destroy the planet. You know, it's that dangerous, it's that big a mistake. And, uh, and I wanted to re- remind people that there was such a, a thing as a, the divinity in female form was not entirely erased, that, that it still exists in some in various shapes and forms, and that it's the responsibility, of, as usual, of the artists, the shaman, the visionary, the priests, for instance, the people who work, who work with the, the human spirit, uh, who, ha- who, shape, who help shape the human spirit, that those are the people who still, have, who still have the ability to revive those forces and to revive the idea of divinity in female form. And it, because before that, before the arrival of that mythology and, the, and, and its predecessor, Greek mythology, be, be, and before all that, if we, the question that appears before us is, where is your wife, where is your mistress, where is your girlfriend? The answer is, she was here. She's here in North America. She was here all this time. She's been here for thousands of years. And it's wrong for you to try to annihilate your wife in that sense, mm-hmm. if you want to give it that context. And it's time perhaps now for, for her to come back to life. Wow. That's a, a quite a profound uh, statement, and I'm, I'm curious if you could just expand on that a little bit, and I know you do in your lecture, but what are the implications of that? What are the implications of that, of w- where things went wrong? Well, I think uh, in, with the establishment of monotheism, uh, the, central, the central story, of course, is... Uh, the male god, without any help from a female force, which is wrong to begin with, because you can't create a, a universe or a planet without the two sexes working together and collaborating. And uh, so that's mistake number one. And then the god, this patriarchal god that created the garden, first of all, the, the light, the, uh, the, light the, the air, the, the soil, the animals, and so on and so forth, and then put them in this garden and, gave, and put man into that garden. And so gave, basically at the end he gave man a gift, the gift of a beautiful garden. And then the story of the snake comes along and the snake talks only to the woman, to the woman and not the man. And I've always wondered about that. And it turns out that after much research that the, only, the reason why he, she, he, the, the snake addressed the woman because she could be fooled and man couldn't. In other words, she was stupid and man was smart. And I think that's wrong. I think that, should, that question should be addressed. And then took that. So therefore, it was woman's fault that we were removed from that garden, that we lost uh, our, our mother, so to speak, mm-hmm. and that uh, there are other langu- other languages, other linguistic structures in other parts of the world. For instance, here in North America, Aboriginal North America, where that that story does not exist. That story of eviction from the garden does not exist. So that we are to us, the Garden of Eden is still here. We are still in it. Canada is a garden. To a sacred garden, and Canada, it should, and it, uh, Canada, and North America, yeah. it should, and it should be treated as such. It should, it should be treated as a garden, not as something to be exploited and to be, to be used. You know. But Eden suggests perfection. Per- perfection. Doesn't it? Perfection is uh, static, where imperfection is dynamic. So imperfection is, you know, there's a continual marriage uh, dance between perfection and imperfection in, uh, in, in, on earth, uh, in, in human thinking, and that there is a reason for that imperfection to continue to flourish. That's the only way I can, dis- I can answer that question. Mm-hmm. We need imperfection. I, I think if we, we achieve perfection, we would die. That would be the end of the world. So we should yeah. strive for imperfection. Yes, well, we don't strive for it. It just, it it just, just happens. happens yeah. you know? 
<laughs> My name is uh, Charlie Gaffney, and um, I'm uh, from Tobik First Nation. I am also an artist. Um, most of my work is done with uh, carving. I do mass making and paddle making. Mm-hmm. Back in high school, which was a, a struggle for me, uh, I think for, for most Indigenous kids growing up and I grew up off reserve and I associated hanging out with uh, most of the indigenous kids at the school and I was identified within that community as being indigenous. I'm very light colored skin but it didn't stop the uh, the racism that I felt and experienced during my high school times. I was on the verge of dropping out as many of my indigenous friends did at the time and there was a gentleman by the name of Ned Bear. And um, Ned Bear is a local artist. He's Willistic Way for, and uh, also part Cree. And he is a mass carver and a, a carver in general. So Ned had a class in high school for some of the kids that were at risk. And I was one of those students at risk because I absolutely did not want to go to school. So um, Ned brought in the wood and the tools and uh, he had these little tables set up for the students and he introduced us to carving the fundamentals of carving. And and the first thing we did, uh, I believe was like a war club. So we, we got out on the land and we went out and we, we harvested some wood and uh, he found some trees and uh, he said, we're going to cut the trees off here and dig out the roots. And when you clean out the roots, we're going to shape that to be the war club. And I thought this is like one of the coolest things I've ever experienced. I thought this is amazing. And the second project was was a mask. Uh, so Ned taught me how to make my first mask. And he said, I'm going to do one side. You're going to copy me and do the other side. And he said, if you're not watching, you're not going to get it. So he didn't talk. He just basically let the tools do the work. And I was just absolutely shocked how quick he could make a mask. And this beautiful face started to form from the wood. And the grain in the wood just was popping out of this mask. And, and I just fell in love with it. The smell of the wood, the wood chips being able to release some of my energy into the wood, hitting, using the, the mallet and banging onto the mallet and the sound of it and just the camaraderie of having the other students in the room, I think really uh, a lot of us felt at peace and at home. And uh, I'll never forget that experience. Going back to the, uh, the whole point, uh, uh, the whole issue of mythologies, indigenous mythologies, mm-hmm. of course, there must be thousands, but yep. y- you think they are more similar than they are different. Why, so. why do you think that is? They represent a they, a vast they, a vast world of, of uh, it's a vast vision, so to speak. And uh, one one likes to hope that those 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 ways of looking at the world, the various ways of looking at the world that are contained in those languages in those nations, can add something to the betterment of the of the planet. Mm-hmm. You know, one hopes for the best, and one makes mistakes, of course. But the mythologies themselves, yeah. I mean, there are so many of them. Yeah. In indigenous mythologies, there must be thousands and thousands of stories. Mm-hmm. What is the, is there something the that binds link? them? Yeah, Yeah, I think it is that, the, I think the trickster is central. It's very central to the, the whole dynamic. And again, it's that garden. It's always the preservation of the garden, living inside the garden and taking care of it. That's, mm-hmm. what's, that's what binds them all together. And I would say that that's it, the garden. That's the, that's the but how about, can we flip the question so we can answer it from the indigenous point of view? Mm-hmm. What is it that's like if if you flip the question rather than answering it from the from from the Eden point of view, but from the indigenous point of view, what makes that different? That worldview different than? Uh, okay, I suppose uh, one one uh, the dominant culture 
with the, the story of the garden was the, the fundamental thing that it was the umbilical cord that tied that civilization to Mother Earth, so to speak, was mm-hmm. cut mm-hmm. at that moment of eviction. And uh, the structure of origi- origi- Aboriginal languages, the very structure of them, and there's certainly the mythology, that, the mythologies, the respective mythologies that come out of that, that, that umbilical cord has not yet been cut. We're still connected to it. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the essential difference. And also, and so we want to, we hope, we pray for the sake of the survival of the planet that the world will uh, listen to that that idea and that changes will be made. That the, the, and the artists will have a, a huge uh, impact on it uh, to reconnect that uh, umbilical cord, to bend that straight line, so to, say, so to speak, into a curve, because I think it's too late to bend it into a circle, mm-hmm. but at least into a curve. For, so at least we will survive for another four or five generations at least. So aside from the comparison with Eden and with that whole way of looking, what would you say, is there something to say about what underlies all of these... Stories. Yeah, in. It's the same. It's that same dynamic. The umbilical cord is still there. It's been damaged seriously, and we're busy repairing it. All of us. You've titled your Massey lectures "Laughing with the Trickster." Mm-hmm. Who's the trickster? Well, the trickster is the central. Every mythology, the whole world over, usually has. Usually, it's about gods giving birth to children. And every mythology usually gives birth to a, 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 a being mm-hmm. or a, a series of beings who are usually because where the central dynamic is for a god, a divine force to have sexual union with a human being or an animal being, and this giving birth to creatures who are half divine and half human or half animal, and some some of those hero figures are more important than others. But uh, but because there was only one patriarchy, but stick to the Christian mythology, there's only one God. Greeks had many gods and goddesses, and therefore gave birth to many, many gods and goddesses. Well, because monotheism has only one God, therefore the, the one hero figure that he gave birth to in union with a human being, Mary, was a, a guy called Jesus, and that's the one central figure in, the, in that particular mm-hmm. mythology. Mm-hmm. Well, in, in, uh, in Aboriginal mythology, because there is no, there, it is not a polytheistic structure, it's not a monotheistic structure, it's a pantheistic structure. It comes from us to a time, to us from a time when human, when humanity haven't yet, hadn't yet given human form to divine energy, divine forces. Can we yeah, reset that question? Like, why is trickster important in the story you yeah. want to tell? Well, the central, that's what I'm getting to that. Okay. So the central hero figure that pantheism gave birth to, uh, to, to really, really simplify the, the issue, was a trickster, was a clown. That was the first being that he, she, that even the word she or he does not exist in our language, that the first child, so to speak, that the, 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 the divine gave to the, the planet was a clown. That was the first creature, the first being. And the clown was put on the face of the earth to, to teach us a essential lesson about existence on the planet earth. Planet earth is not to suffer, not to, not to apologize, not to, not to say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, God, for being alive. I know I shouldn't be here, but that's to me that's so negative that's so negative and so destructive whereas the the, the trickster is here to tell us that no the reason for plant existence and planet is not to suffer not to feel good not to apologize but to laugh yeah. we are here to laugh and that's where the trickster is so the, the cosmic clown he has been called in the past what about the fact that he exists in many shapes or forms what is that supposed to tell us i think that it tells us that at one point in time through the course of uh, 
human history that each and every uh, culture that came to the fore and developed into the form that it is today did had at one point had, had the trick, they all had tricksters yeah. and there's evidence of that all over the place and the most and the most obvious uh, uh, result of all that is, is the uh, is the existence of uh, comedians today you know the most classic example being Charlie Chaplin <laughs> yeah. it, it doesn't seem as though we could trust the trickster yeah. I'm wondering why that's useful I think the, the trickster is uh, um, one of the features of the trickster is that he's here to laugh. Yes, absolutely, but he makes mistakes, you know, and we make mistakes. So, making a mistake is uh, making mistakes is part of the part of the journey, mm. you know. Like uh, we can never uh, achieve perfection, thank goodness. But the the dynamic of imperfection as as dynamism. It's always with us, insofar as we make mistakes, and then, of course, mistakes are made for us to correct. But what do we learn by not being able to trust? I think that's where fear probably comes in. Fear, which is an inevitable part of the human, of human, the human experience, and uh, and the, and that which which in turn gives us uh, the emotional apparatus, so to speak, a, a, a psychological apparatus to deal with fear, to to eradicate fear, to uh, to annihilate, to uh, to negate fear. Yeah? That's what it's for. Yeah. My connection with the land, I mean, it, it's pretty clear in every piece. If you've seen my work, you know, it, it's reinforced. And that stems back to, to my teachings. When I started learning about the spirituality of it all and the teachings from the medicine wheel, that's my every art class started with us getting our coffee and then drawing a circle on the paper and breaking it down, you know. So you have earth, air, fire, water. And then you have like the four seasons and the four races, you know, which she teaches you that we're all part of this whole and we all kind of have a responsibility to the elements that make up the whole, you know. So that's 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 the starting point for me is the idea of that balance. And I bring that forward in everything that I do. I always have. And, you know, part of the Mi'kmaq teachings is we grew up from the land like the grass, like the trees. So we're not separate from it. We're like a part of it all, right? And, uh, well, for, for women in our language, it's Abed. And that means the one who works with creator. And then the man is the one who takes care of the one who works with the creator. You know, so that's there's an honoring right there, right in the language. And in the language, too, it's reflective of the land. And our dialects change from region to region depending on whether we, you know, grew up next to the ocean or next to the river. There's subtle sounds in the description within our language, which is a very, like, active language, and the sound either reflects the sound of the ocean water hitting the side of the rocks or the river water. So that's where the variants come in. So, you know, a part of us being responsible for the land as Indigenous people is, like, this responsibility to preserve our language because that's where the lessons are it's extremely important for me there there's no separation like i said about there's no separation from art and life there's no separation from life and nature it's all part of that balance you know we're earth air fire water it's about finding that balance in english Mm -hmm. trickster is a puzzling figure he she doesn't really fit into the world of myth Mm -hmm. what is it about the cree language that makes a trickster a more natural fit well, again, it goes back to the language. It's a trickster language. It's, a very, uh, it's just uh, the first word you utter in Cree, you start laughing automatically. 
And uh, that's the only way I can explain it. The reason it laughs, or it laughs with the very first syllable that is uttered, is because that language is motored by a clown. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's of necessity. It is funny. Whereas as soon as we switch to English, that, that laughter ceases. In one sense, one language. Let's put it this way: in one sense, a lang- one language wasn't evicted from the Garden of Eden. Some languages were evicted from the Garden of Eden; others weren't. Weren't, and that's the central. That's the central difference. We want that garden back. We want it to be be, be a garden again, as opposed to be a as opposed to being a garbage dump, which is what it's been treated like. And uh, and and we hope to get there sooner or later. So at least insofar as we can extend the life of the planet long enough for other, you know, at least four or five, more, five four or five more generations to 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 flourish. Like you, your grandchildren. Your, your, I would like. We ha- I have two grandchildren who are now eleven and nine, and I would like to. Th- I would like to give them a planet when I leave, which should be very soon. Imagine them at age seventy. You know what kind of planet they will be living with. We'll have to deal with. What I would like to help them in so far as that I would like to them have a planet where that is still livable, air that is still breathable, water that is still drinkable, all that sort of stuff. And uh, I don't want to leave them a dump. I don't want to leave them a. Uh, uh, like a destroyed environment. I want them. Do you think that's healthy. possible? I I think it's still possible. One one always has hope. One always has hope. That's why we're here. We we're still here because we haven't given up hope. Yeah. What's your relationship with the trickster? Oh, my trickster is uh, my f- best friend. I, he lives inside me. Well, which is why I laugh almost constantly. Very very close. Very intimate. Very personal. Very magical. Uh, he makes me. He he nudges my dreams. He nudges my uh, my 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 soul into into a dream state, and I dream fabulous dreams. And I believe that I can go to those magical places myself. And uh, he gives me hope. Right now, I'm living. My father, who never went to school for one day, and who was illiterate. I'm right because he put me on that plane to go to school and wished me well for to give, to to win an extraordinary education, which I have. I am today. I am living out my father's wildest dreams. Mm-hmm. You know, so one objective has been reached, and I want other. I, and I want my grandchildren to have the same kind of life that I have today, which is absolutely and utterly magical. In in broad strokes, the lectures point us to new ways, very old ways of thinking about our relation to the natural world. Mm-hmm which, as you say, is now on the brink of ruin because of human negligence. Mm-hmm. Can you just address what you think went wrong? What is it that, <clears throat> how did we end that, up in this place? Yeah, I think the biggest mistake that humanity has made vis-a-vis its relationship to the planet is the story of eviction from the garden. You know, that, that story is questionable. It was, it's, it's ultimately, ultimately it's fiction. The, the, the snakes don't talk, Okay. To base an entire civilization on a talking snake is questionable. I sincerely doubt it. And so that that error has to be corrected. The way forward, you seem to be saying, is not just rethinking our relationship or our relation to society, to the natural world, but also rethinking what it means to be human as -hmm. an individual. Mm -hmm. What's the challenge that that represents? Can you talk about that? Well, I think that... uh, Monotheism, I think, uh, encourages self-centeredness. Like you're alone in the world, and you're going, and you're out there to to to, uh, to conquer that garden and to conquer humanity. And that's where that's where the F word comes from. I'm scared of that word, the F word, F A S C I S T. And we see it politically all around us. Oh dear, more and more so every day. And uh, 
to think in a terms more more universal is to be the biggest responsibility we have to think of. I think the greatest the key to happiness, mm. in my opinion, is to think of others first before you think of yourself. To always to take care of people around you, to take care of the, you know the plants in your garden, to take care of the animals around you, to take care of your parks, to take care of the quality of the water that you you know drink, f- not for you but for the next generation, for others. And uh, that's to me, that's our biggest responsibility. That's a, I think that's the greatest damage that monotheism has, has, has done. It's taught self-centeredness, you know. There's too much self-centeredness. We need to be more universal in thinking, more giving, more generous, more loving. It's happiness. To be, think of others, it really is happiness. Yeah. How do you yeah. say drowning in love in Cree? Drowning in love? In Stapawayana, in Stapawayana, long. Cree words are very, very long. In Stapawayana, that means I'm drowning. And they say, Because I love people so much. And I do. I love people very, very much. Thank you so much for talking to us. You're welcome. Thank, Thank you. you. At age 70, I still speak Cree, as I will to the end of my days. If anything... I speak it with a fluency and a rapidity that makes some people marvel at the syllable's rhythm, which is musical, but even more at its speed, which is blinding. I think in Cree, dream in it, write books and plays and music in it. I speak what's more, the dialect of the language that is spoken in the most remote corner of northwestern Manitoba. Cree was a lingua franca in a highway household when I was growing up. It was only with later generations that it started fading. The cause? Electricity and its most subversive offspring, television, and later the internet. The very first victim of this offspring was our language, and in fact all native languages across this country. Television ushered in the era of their gradual erasure. The first casualty of this linguistic loss? Laughter. For if Cree is the world's fastest language, it is also its funniest. The reason? A clown god motors our native languages, making them doubly spectacular, doubly joyful. It certainly does with Cree. A laughing deity virtually governs the way our tongues move, the way our blood flows, the way our lungs pump, the way our brains pop, dance, and sizzle. Called Wisage Chak in Cree, Nanabush in Ojibwe, Gluskap in Mi'kmaq, Coyote in British Columbia's southern interior, Raven on its coast, that being is known in English as the trickster. So when the generation that followed mine stopped speaking Cree, Half their sense of humor disappeared. It got watered down by the English language. Fortunately for me, electricity didn't arrive in my hometown of Old Brochet until the summer of 1973, when I was 21. Too late for me to lose my language, which is how and why my Cree survived unscathed. Uskipmatsak, which means the new livers, that is, the next generation were not so lucky. So they laughed with half our usual gusto. They chuckled, yes, once every Tuesday when the priest wasn't looking. They chortled, they giggled, they snickered, they snorted, they squeaked, they squawked, but guffawed robustly until they fretted they did not. The nerve! Without that language, the trickster might very well say, 
laughter dies. As for all the languages the whole world over, they are so different one from the other that the result, if they were all spoken at once, would be a cacophony, a dreadful clattering of wayward consonants. Still, all are here for a reason. Each has its genius, its strength, its applicability. Most pointedly, if botanists tell us that the Amazon jungle has plants and herbs that number in the millions, each of which holds the key to a possible cure for physical ailments, illnesses, and disease, then languages function likewise. The difference is that the ailments they address are not so much physical as emotional, psychological, and spiritual, ailments that can be just as debilitating, just as lethal. Without languages, we would be lost, directionless, even suicidal. Life on earth would be static. It would have no meaning. Like birdsong, languages make our planet a beautiful place, a fascinating place, indeed a miraculous place to live on. been listening to the first of the 2022 CBC Massey Lectures, Laughing with the Trickster on Sex, Death and Accordions by the acclaimed Cree writer Thompson Highway. Today's lecture was originally presented live in Fredericton. Due to technical difficulties with the recording, we've recreated it here in conversation form. You also heard excerpts from a discussion Thompson had in Fredericton with members of the Maui Art Webanaki Collective. Our thanks to them and to artists Matt Como, Tara Francis, Brandon Mitchell, Natasha Martin Mitchell, and Charlie Gaffney. The entire 2022 CBC Massey Lecture Series will be available on our website, cbc.ca slash Masseys. You can also download the podcast from our podcast page. Your local bookseller will have the book version of the lectures, Laughing with the Trickster on Sex, Death and Accordions, published by House of Anansi Press. That music you're listening to, by the way, is written by Thompson Highway. It's from his latest album, Cree Country, which, as the title suggests, is a collection of country music-styled songs sung in Cree by Patricia Cano. Cree Country is only available on Spotify. Our partners in the Massey Lecture Series are Massey College at the University of Toronto and House of Anansi Press. The Massey Lecture Series is produced by Philip Coulter. Online production by Althea Madison, Ben Shannon, Sinisha Jolich, and Paul Gorbold. Our web producer is Lisa Ayuso. Technical production, Danielle Duval. Our senior producer is Nikola Lukšić. The executive producer of the Massey Lectures and Ideas is Greg Kelly and I, Nala Ayand. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.